Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers a tremendous range of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from, along with a plentitude of style options so you can make your site look just how you want it to look. It's easy to use. It's all about functionality and convenience. But, but if for any reason you need help, Squarespace has a world-class support team at the ready 24-7. And remember, these people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. Pause for a moment and close your eyes and imagine, if you will, the Care Bear Lair. You feel better, don't you? Packages start at just eight bucks a month and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your website so your content will always look great on every device, every time. So let's do this, you guys. Start a trial right now, no credit card required, and start building your website. Go to squarespace.com, and when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code other one. Again, that offer code is other and then the numeral one. You do that, you get 10% off. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this offer. It's the very best way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. 
just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is poised to go viral. This might be a delusional attempt at creating profitable content. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Brad Listy. Remember me? Do you know me? Uh, I'm the man who hosts this show. I'm sitting in a chair at the moment in Los Angeles, and uh, earlier today, I was reading a blog post on the internet by someone I follow on Twitter. And I feel like I should plug her Twitter feed, uh, and by extension of that, her blog. I don't know this young woman. Uh, her name is Alex Cullen. You can follow her on Twitter, at Alex Cullen. Uh, Alex, uh, I should note, is spelled A-L-Y-X. Is that for real, or did she change it? I find that mysterious. Uh, apparently, Alex just moved to Paris, France, to uh, write a novel. Not exactly a novel idea. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I could not resist a little wordplay. So, Alex is an American freshly arrived in Paris, and she is documenting her experiences uh, about her day-to-day uh, -day life in Paris and so on and so forth uh, on a blog that is called Sunnyside Tuxedo. Recently, uh, she wrote a post about Paris and its uh, famous literary history and uh, Café de Fleur and Le Dumégo and uh, whether or not members of, uh, for example, the Lost Generation knew back when everything was happening in the 1920s that they were indeed having a quote-unquote moment, a cultural moment. Meaning, you know, were they aware as it was happening that they were doing, you know, that what they were doing was the stuff of uh, legend? Or did this only become apparent after the fact when other people started telling them or, or saying aloud in the press that it was legend? Or did they ever know? And I think that's an interesting question because, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, of course. And I'm sure it's tempting if you happen to be a participant in a, a cultural moment slash uh, movement of this kind, I'm sure it's tempting to say that you knew it was going to happen from the very beginning. But did you really know? Honestly. It's like, uh, you know, I remember reading uh, Bob Dylan's memoir, Chronicles, where, uh, you know, he's describing his younger years uh, in uh, Greenwich Village or whatever. And, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I'm working from memory here, which uh, tends to be problematic for me. But I want to say I remember a passage where Dylan is talking about how he knew, how, you know, somehow, mystically, he knew that uh, he was going to become huge and uh, that, you know, this was his time. He was the voice of a generation. He, he didn't say it that way, but he said it, you know, as much. We, you know, which is easy to say when you're huge. But, you know, what if he really did know? <laughs> because, you know, in my whole life, if I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, my whole life, somewhere uh, deep inside of me, I have felt like I might become huge one day. <laughs> and you know what? I think, uh, I think most people who do art of any kind nurse this sort of feeling privately. Uh, not everyone, but a lot of us. And uh, is that just a function of ego? Uh, are we delusional? Uh, do we need to delude ourselves in this manner in order to continue making art with all of the uh, sacrifices and uncertainty that it uh, tends to require? I don't know. Uh, what I will say is this. As I have gotten older, while remaining utterly unhuge, 
I continue to, uh, somewhere in the back of my mind, feel as though it could happen. <laughs> Which uh, I suppose technically it could for anyone. And uh, now I'm thinking to myself, is that sad? Am I a sad uh, middle-aged man with a podcast? So, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, he died uh, of a heart attack just about a mile away from where I'm sitting right now, back in uh, 1940, I believe. He was a young man, and he was in his early 40s, and when he died, uh, I want to say his books were out of print. They certainly weren't selling, and uh, I think uh, to a considerable degree he felt like a failure, uh, all of which is to say... I cannot imagine that F. Scott Fitzgerald died feeling confident that he had participated in a significant cultural moment and would later become the stuff of a literary legend. But I also don't discount the possibility that someone could participate in such a moment and in that moment accurately predict its broad consequences or uh, cultural significance and or, or whatever. You know what I mean. I think that could happen. I, I will not rule out that possibility that somebody could have that sense. But I think that those people, and uh, more to the point, clear evidence of those people having said feelings is rare. Most of them are full of shit. They had no idea. They're just uh, using the benefit of hindsight and pretending like they knew to further enhance their hugeness. And, uh, you know, I think Bob Dylan, he's, he's like, he's famously full of shit. If you ever read his old interviews, especially back in the 60s, but, you know, or, or even beyond. I mean, he's just all his career, he's been this way. But I think he's in on the joke most of the time. He likes to fuck with people. I mean, I just saw Inside Lou and Davis, the uh, Coen Brothers movie, which was enjoyable. And, uh, you know, it makes you think of Bob Dylan. And it makes you ask yourself the question, why, of all those people, was he the one who emerged, you know, from the folk music scene of the 1960s in New York, while uh, everybody else, for all intents and purposes, perished <laughs> in obscurity? Who knows, man? You know, who really knows? Does Bob Dylan even know? I, I doubt it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now 
wherever you buy books. My guest today is Rachel Cantor. Her debut novel, A Highly Unlikely Scenario, or A Nizza Pizza Employee's Guide to Saving the World, is now available from Melville House. I'm very happy to have Rachel here on the uh, program, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, here she is, folks. This is Rachel Cantor, and her new novel, once again, is called A Highly Unlikely Scenario. I'm in Brooklyn in my home, my home neighborhood of Kensington, and I'm at my very close neighbor's apartment because she has a landline. So I'm sitting on her very comfortable um, uh, settee or, or lounge chair, and um, and uh, using her landline, which has never been used before. She had to find it out of a box. Okay, <laughs> f- okay. so first of all, uh, Kensington. Yeah. I've, I've heard of the different uh, parts of Brooklyn. I, for some reason, I've never heard of Kensington. It sounds very uh, regal. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of regal. Oh, it is? <laughs> it's, it's, um, you just shattered my dream. <laughs> your brand new dream. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's just southwest of Prospect Park, and it's it's kind of nestled between much more tony neighbors. So we're south of Windsor Terrace, if that means something to your listeners, or um, Gitmas Park. We're just kind of, uh, let me think, my geography, west of Gitmas Park. Um, but we're mostly, it's mostly a neighborhood of um, uh, recently arrived immigrants from South Asia and Russia and Mexico, uh, a lot of Orthodox Jews and Poles. And it's, I think, I heard tell once on the Internet, which we all know how... Um, <laughs> how uh, reliable that is. It's the most uh, ethnically diverse zip code in the country. Wow. Or maybe just in New York. Well, that's yeah. sort of cool. It's very cool. Yeah. It's very cool. So it's got yeah. that going for it. And then you said you were sitting on a settee. And uh, <laughs> forgive me for not knowing, what is it? Because I'm picturing you in like one of those like loungers that like people lie back in during therapy. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> well, actually, I misspoke because I think I was thinking about my book and how, how Leonard has a settee in his, uh, in his white room, which is where he... Um, relieves clients in pain with pizza coupons. Actually, I'm in a kind of a, uh, a loungy chair with an ottoman. It, it would be a lazy boy if it moved, but it's not. it doesn't move. It's very comfortable. Yeah. Well, see, this is the thing. I've been having this argument with my wife uh, uh-huh. because well, recliners, I love a recliner. Yeah. I know recliners are tacky or whatever. Yeah. They're not like fashionable and like Scandinavian, but uh, oh. I love a lazy boy. I want. I want a lazy boy more than anything. Yes, I want. Du- no, not only do I want a lazy boy, I want dueling lazy boys. <laughs> I want a lazy boy couch. Yeah, I'm just like yeah, right. I'm ready. <laughs> a lazy I'm, boy couch I'm re- with cup holders. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just ready for the two of us to just like grow old together in dueling lazy boys. <laughs> with a really really huge projection screen TV where we can watch football, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. All right. That sounds like a dream, it's, but right now, right now I'm uh, I'm kind of. Uh, you know, stuck with this really, like, I guess, good-looking, sleek furniture that is extremely uncomfortable to sit in. <laughs> well, it discourages sloths, doesn't it? Yes. No, I mean, I haven't sat in my living room in, like, months, ages, <laughs> years. Does it still have the plastic wrap on it? No, but my dog is... Our, the other problem is that our dog has taken it over, which is... There's, like, fur on it. It's just, like, it's, <laughs> we need to get rid of it, and we need to kennel the dog or do something. <laughs> it's uncomfortable and furry. Yes. It's just... It's a disaster. So Don't invite uh, me over. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're in luck. I'm, I'm across the country, so there will be. All right, good point. Um, so congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. It T- launches today. I was going to say, I know that. Yeah. I think I read that either uh, on Twitter or somewhere, but you're having your big uh, party tonight at Book Court. It's tomorrow night, and it's at uh, Greenlight. Was that a test? 
I don't know. I thought it was at Book Court, but I could be wrong. No, no it's at Greenlight, and it's tomorrow night. Okay. And uh, Hannah Tinty's going to be leading a conversation, and um, yeah, it's the first event. It's the first event, it's the, and it's kind of the, 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 big, the big one. Okay, so I don't know Hannah Tinty, but I see Hannah oh. Tinty. I, I see Hannah's name all over her book. She's, oh. a, she's a generous blurber. She seems like a good, uh, nice person. She's a fantastic person. Well, you probably know that she's the editor of One Story Magazine, which has by now, I don't know, published 150 or 200 so-called emerging writers, not always emerging, but often emerging writers. And, and so not only does she take great care of the writers that she publishes, but she also she does what she can for them after the fact. So after your book comes out, your first book or maybe any book, but especially the first book, she throws a big party every year, which is actually a fundraiser for One Story called the Debutante Ball. And uh, we, we debutante authors get to walk down the aisle with our mentors, and then she'll have a reading for us. And, and she will blurb um, one-story authors only, I think, because she naturally gets a million requests every year. Right, okay. So she's so- a, a fantastic literary citizen and also a very sweet person and a wonderful writer, first and foremost, of course. Wow. Oh, that sounds that sounds good. That sounds like a yeah. good, good person to have in your corner, and it sounds like it should be good a good show tomorrow night. Are you expecting... Like lots of friends from the area and from the community? I'm, I'm hoping so. You know, I, I, I've been doing a lot of um, <laughs> doing a lot of tweeting and a lot of Facebooking. And, and uh, there's lots of people from different parts of my life in the past, you know, the kind that you reconnect with on Twitter or more, more like, I guess, Facebook. They're, they're, they're friends from your elementary school and so on and so forth. And we're going to be getting some folks maybe I haven't even seen for a long time. And that's, that's an enormous, enormous pleasure. And I have family coming in from out of town for various events and it's going to be it's just going to be an enormous enormous pleasure okay so have you noticed that people have been nicer to you since you got this book deal because i feel i mean i don't mean to be i don't mean to be too cynical but i feel like that's the case like when you have a book coming out like people it's like moths to light they love to be around and i mean it's human nature but i think like what happens when uh you know a few months from now when you're like hey i just want people to come Come see me. Let <laughs> me for who I am. Right. What happened? Well, what happened to all the love? <laughs> Maybe six months from now I'll invent a new book and, and pretend it's coming out just so I can get all those likes. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You've got to keep it rolling. Otherwise, you know, that's right. the moths move on to the next uh, flame. That's so disappointing. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Shouldn't, I think feel like one flame should be enough for these people, but it's... <laughs> You think I can I can make a big deal out of my six month anniversary or something like that? Yeah, well, like you know, you can you can find all sorts of different reasons, but uh, yeah. Um, but honestly, like, do you have you heard from people? Uh, it sounds like elementary school people coming out of the woodwork to congratulate you. Like, well, they're mostly mostly people that I found or who have found me already in places like Facebook and so on. But actually, you know, having having my website up and and having the New York Times book review, which came out on Sunday, which was very positive, that did bring some people out of the woodwork and. And I'm getting I'm getting more friend requests for people I don't know, you know, things like that. Um, and I think <laughs> there are a few people in the literary world who are paying a little closer attention than they did, whatever, six months ago. But, yeah, like you said, that's human nature, and I'm sure I've done that many, many times as well. I mean, part of the, part of the thing is your name is out there all of a sudden, and so people, maybe they learn something about you, and then, then they suddenly realize that you're interesting, or you might be interesting. Right. Suddenly they're, suddenly they're tagging you on Twitter. I've been noticed, I noticed this. I noticed this. And, like, again, I, I hope I'm not being too cynical, but I, feel, I call it uh, co-branding, where people oh. will, will, like, start to co-brand with other authors by, like, tagging them or, like, tag- uh-huh. you know, it's like, what's going on here? I feel like there's a level of self-interest, you know? Like, they're, like, cheering for you, but at the same time, it's like 
they're like tweeting about you in conjunction with you or I'm a, yeah. am, I, am I a dark soul is something <laughs> <laughs> You're obviously not as, as, as interested in attention as I am. I think. <laughs> oh, don't underestimate me. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, at this point, everything's happening a little bit fast and furious. And it would kind of be nice, I suppose, if it were spread out more, more, more um, evenly throughout the year. But, um, you know, whatever. It's nice. I like it all. If they want, to, if they want, to, if they want like a, a picture of themselves with me, so to speak, virtually speaking, like on Twitter, I'm, I'm just as happy as can be if it means they're going to be telling their their friends and associates and their bots about me. Why not, right? Yeah. Well, you got to tell those bots. That's huge. <laughs> you got to tell the bots. Nothing, nothing, does more for, <laughs> nothing does more for a young author than like a uh, kind algorithm. <laughs> or even an old author, yeah. Right, right. right. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so – where are you from? I was reading uh, your bio a little bit, and it sounds like you're really well-traveled and you had kind of an exotic uh, upbringing. But, like, where do you consider yourself from? You know, I wish I wish I could answer that really simply. I, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, which I guess is on my bio, and I lived there until the age of nine. And I still have a lot of family there. So, you know, there's a lot of family holidays that still take place in, in Connecticut or, 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 or you know, um, New England, more broadly speaking. Uh, but I left there for all intents and purposes in fifth grade. So we went overseas. We went to Rome, and I was there through the age of 15. And Okay, so, so yeah, wait, so wait. So you Sorry. moved to Rome. Why did you move to Rome? Uh, you know, my parents divorced when I was nine, and, and my mother wanted to get away, and she spoke some Italian, and she liked Italy, and so she took me and my sister over there. We were supposed to be there for one year, and uh, at the end of one year, she said, so girls, do you want to stay another year? I think we said no, and she said, oh, we're going to stay another year, and this happened for six years, and, and um, finally we, we came back to the States in, uh, for my last two years of high school, and I was in Brookline, Mass. at that time, and graduated from Brookline High, and then, yeah, I, I have lived lots and lots and lots of places. I, I really do consider New York home, although, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I've lived in other places for far longer than I've lived here. Okay, so what about this time in Italy? You learned to speak Italian? Yeah. You, because this fascinates me. Like, this, this sounds like okay. something sort of, uh, I mean, I guess you wanted to come home, but it sounds sort of dreamy to me to have had this experience. Um, you know, I went to American schools. Initially, because we were only going to go for one year, my mother thought it made more sense for us to go to, me, us by us, I mean, me and my sister, to go to an American school so we wouldn't get behind in our classes and so on and, you know, I don't know, learn different, <laughs> different ways of adding and subtracting. Um, but that meant that, um, you know, being in an English school and spending all my holidays, my vacation times back in the States, my Italian is okay, but I never became fluent, sadly. Oh, you did? And, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think if, if I had been, you know, if I'd gone to Italian school, I would have been fluent in five minutes, right? Um, I, I, did, I studied some Italian in high school and in college, and I've spent very little time there since, but I still sometimes have a dream in Italian, and, and I can have, I can understand maybe half of what's said in an Italian movie when they're speaking quickly. Yeah, and I mean, it's like at that age, too, you were, what, nine? Not, yeah, I was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, yeah. So all this, all this stuff happens, your parents split up, and then suddenly you're, like, in a foreign country. Like, that had, yeah. that, that had to have... Um, do you consider that formative for you in terms yeah. of the fact that you became a writerly person? I think so. You know, these, 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 these origin stories are kind of hard to, hard to trace, but... Um, I think that sense of disorientation, that sense of language as being kind of a foreign thing that you have to attend to and, 
and uh, kind of magical thing even, but also the sense of being not quite at home in the world or not really belonging in your environment and making you sort of an outsider. I think a lot of writers feel like outsiders. But I have to say I feel <clears throat> I've always felt kind of jealous of those writers who have a strong tie to their native their native town, you know, or their native region, and they can write about it convincingly and, and deeply and with a lot of, um, I don't know, texture. And I don't, I don't, I don't have that. Right, no, neither I do I. That. I don't have a place. I mean, I moved around a little bit, not, not uh, quite as exotically as you did, but I was, uh, you know, I don't have a place, you know. Right. Um, I guess how, old were you, how old were you when you moved for the first time? Well, I mean, I was t- like two years old, not even. Yeah. And then again, I mean, you know, there were three or four moves when during Got my childhood, it. but there was like one pivotal one when I was six, uh, in sixth grade, going into yes. sixth grade, and like, yes. so you know that age, like that's like, you know, all of a sudden everything shifts, and it, um, yes. it, uh, it's pretty, uh, tra- it was traumatic for me. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's, did, and did you, yeah, did you go to a place that was very different from the place where you had grown up? Or you still at that point? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was all, it's, all, it's always different because you don't know any yeah. other people. But, I mean, it wasn't That's like – it, it was still in the Midwest, so it wasn't like the, right. huge, it wasn't like the huge cultural shock that I'm, yeah. I'm imagining you felt in Italy. Yeah, but even school to school can be a huge cultural shock because every school has its own culture, right, doesn't it? Yeah. And its own set of expectations. I think, I think in adolescence, <laughs> I don't have to tell you, is a kind of a, a sensitive time, isn't it? It's a hard time to make – adjustments to your identity or, or to kind of withstand challenges to your identity, isn't it? Yeah. But, well, and yet, yeah. and yet I say, I, I always say like half jokingly that I, uh, the best year of my entire life was eighth grade. I think that was when I was at my personal best somehow. <laughs> that makes you, you, that makes you alone among whatever, however many we are, three billion, three trillion. How many people are we? Yeah. That's I, pretty remarkable. I peaked in eighth grade. <laughs> it was a glorious, it was a glorious year. It's like, it was like the year in which my like, um, you know, inherent like immaturity and like uh, sense of humor. You know, kind of like, lowbrow. <laughs> were celebrated. Yeah, they were celebrated. They found their like they found their home in that particular <laughs> age. And you're still trying to recreate that, right? Uh, I've been trying for years <laughs> to no avail. So well, okay, so you go to Italy. Um, your mother, uh, your mother is loving it. She's having. I mean, is she working there? What is she doing? She was a pianist and. Um, She's still well. She's not anymore, but she was at the time a pianist, classically trained pianist. And you know, Italy was so inexpensive at the time that really one could live on very, very little. And 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 we kind of did. Uh, so she did various things. She uh, she accompanied dance performances or dance classes. She accompanied recitals at a at a music school in Rome. And after a couple of years, she joined. This is kind of an unbelievable story, but absolutely true. She joined a uh, an American gospel, a black American gospel kind of work song group uh, that sang in Rome and all around Italy. And they were kind of half sponsored by the Catholic Church. Sometimes they performed even for the Communist Party. I mean, they had a whole range of supporters, which is not surprising if you know Italy at all. Uh, and she played with them for a couple of years. She played the piano. And um, wait, wait, was she touring? So you you going on tour? Yeah, she toured. I mean, by then, you know, this was the last maybe three years that we were there. I'm guessing. So I was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, and maybe able to stay at home alone with my sister. We did travel a little bit with her. I mean, they weren't touring all the time, but they did travel to various places. And a couple times we would go with them. Um, they did. They did some odd things. They they were on TV a few times, backing up a, a major a major Italian pop star, 
and they did a, um, a, a film score for like one of those spaghetti westerns once, and for which they, I think they received no money whatsoever. What was the spaghetti western? Would we know it? You know, oh no, no, no. It would have been one of one trillion that were made around that time. It was, uh, but but Spencer, I think it was one of one of those one of those films. And I, if my, if if I had, you know. Half the memories in my head that I had even 10 years ago, I could probably retrieve the name of it, but sorry. They go. No, I trust me. I've, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I have a profoundly bad memory. So. <laughs> it, it, it's hard for me to convey to people how truly, truly bad my memory is, but, um, but there are a few people out there who understand what I say. <laughs> I, I feel your pain. I totally get it. <laughs> So, but you know, I, I kind of have to, I have to commend your mother because yeah. this is, this is the kind of like ballsy move that yeah. not many human beings make. Right. I mean, to say, right. you know, uh, I'm going to pack yeah. up on my own. I'm going to take my girls yeah. and I'm going to go to Rome just because yeah. it sounds, yeah, let's go have an adventure. Right. It, That's exactly right. And, and um, the thing about it is that I think yeah. from, you know, you look at something like that and you try to imagine doing it yourself and all of yeah. a sudden, like all the hurdles present themselves and oh, please. But the thing about it is that sometimes in life, and I think it, this is um, especially true maybe with travel experiences, mm-hmm. is that you just buy the ticket and you go. And you get yeah. over there and you rent a place and you, mm-hmm. you figure it out, you know? I figure it out, yeah. Well, even more so when I remember how young she was, of course. You know, she, she had children at, I mean, I was born when she was 24 because that's what they did then. Right? So right? She, yeah. she left in whatever it was, 19, I won't say it out loud, but a very, very long time ago. And she would have been in her very early 30s. and. You know, most of us these days are still trying to figure out who we are in our early 30s, much less, you know, taking off with a couple kids to a, a strange country. Yeah, she, she was very brave. and, and uh, Was she, dat- was she I- dating Italian men? Because it seems like she was like, <laughs> she's like, all right, I'm out of this marriage. I'm going to go find some Italian men. I'm going to go to Italy. <laughs> she had some friends. Okay. <laughs> <She did. laughs> well, good for her. Yes. And then what is your, your dad was back in the States. Yeah, my dad is a lawyer. He lives in Hartford, West Hartford, Connecticut, and he was always he was always the rock. You know, he stayed exactly in that town, basically since he finished uh, finished law school. So, you know, wherever I might have been around the world, he was he was always there in that in in Hartford, and and uh, always a place I could always a place I could turn to. Right. Father as place, always a person I could turn to. Also, of course. So he had the place. So your dad he had got, the place, and you and you got Rome. I think that's a pretty good deal for you. I got to say. <laughs> Uh, Hartford is Hartford. <laughs> yeah, I mean Hartford has its charms, but <laughs> I'm sure it does. Do you do you know your way around Rome? Like if you go back there, because I've visited there, and I've, I mean it's a beautiful city, but I found it especially hard to like navigate because of the like exactly. it, the roadmap is like spaghetti, you know? Yeah, you know I sometimes I sometimes in my mind try to walk my way to various places, and you know actually in this book which I just published today. Um, I have to I have to kind of negotiate a, an itinerary for my for my heroes. The, they go from place A to B to C to D. And to be sure, I, I looked at maps, and and to the extent that I could, I looked at old maps. But um, you know, I, I have a general sense, and, and beyond that, it's hard for me to know. I think if it's been 15 years since I've been there, but I, I have a feeling that if I got there, it would be like it would be like going to familiar places. Right. I, I maybe I have to believe that because I don't want to feel that disconnected from my past, but um, I think so. Although I might tr- I might make a wrong turn, and I certainly wouldn't want to try to navigate the bus system based on my memory. Oh, that would God. be tragic. Yeah, yeah that would... that's difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so okay, so as a child, uh, and I can see kind of I can I always like to trace like the writerly DNA in people that I talk with. Uh-huh. But, like, Dad's a lawyer. Mom's a pianist and has yeah. like an artistic uh, bent. So like I can see uh-huh. where, I can see how you could have turned out. Uh, you know, literary. 
Yeah, it's most very left brain, right brain, both of them combining. And my father's also a writer. He's he's written a number of books, and you know, he might have he might have modeled that writing is possible. You know that 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 side of things. And, well, what did he write? He wrote well. He he wrote a couple of novels, which he had the good sense not to publish. Um, but he also he wrote a number of books about um, on legal subjects. He wrote about uh, divorce reform back when that was a subject worth talking about. He wrote about um, he wrote a book. Um, Didn't Alec Baldwin write a book about that? <laughs> I don't know. I want to say he did. <laughs> Maybe not with the same sort of legal legal uh, uh, background. No, it's just a, <laughs> a string of expletives. That was all that it was. But, he, I mean, he, wrote, he, he wrote a book on child custody. Most recently, he wrote a book with my sister and, and other people on uh, gay marriage, kind of before all those dominoes started to fall. So he's, kind of, he's been a maverick. Wow. So yeah. he's a smart guy. Very smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And if you ever need a divorce, God right. forbid. <laughs> right. I'll call him up. <laughs> exactly. She wouldn't go for the lazy boy. What do I do? <laughs> right. right. Uh, so, okay. So uh, as a young Those child. grounds in some states, by the way. Right. Perfectly acceptable <laughs> grounds. Um, so as a, as a child, um, uh, when do you start writing? When do you start, you know, like, did you know from a young age? You know, when I was eight years old, I was in a public school in Hartford, Connecticut, and, uh, there was this marvelous, marvelous teacher. And doesn't, don't, don't a lot of these stories begin with a marvelous teacher? Yes. I've heard yeah, it. I've heard right? it over and over again on this show. You've heard a lot of them. I think, you know, she, she, <clears throat> she was a fourth grade teacher, but she came down. I don't know why she came down to the third grade class once a week to pluck some of us out of our class and bring us up to her fourth grade class for a creative writing session. And, um, and then I was, in the next year I was in her class and, uh, I loved it. I just, I just loved it. And, and I wanted to be Shakespeare and Louisa May Alcott both together. You know, those <laughs> so you were, clear, so you, you were setting your bar low is what you're yeah, saying. And high, right. right. <laughs> but I, yeah, she, and because it was, it was, uh, it was something to do, and 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 um, I mean, not just something you you might play around with, but something that that had you know currency, I guess. And and I I published my first something in 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 third grade. It was a, it was a Valentine's Day poem. It ended up in my local newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. There's something. Hey, but there's something powerful about seeing your stuff in print. <laughs> it was a happy day. It'll give you the bug. I won this. I mean, I still remember winning the spelling bee. Oh. Yeah, that was a big victory. I beat a girl named Holly, and I spelled the word bridges. I mean, like, and this is <laughs> this from a guy who has a terrible memory, you know. So certain things stick for whatever reason. The, the uh, visual, the visual, the visual memory of words, words, and how they look, right? Yeah, yeah. no, it was always I was always a good speller, but yeah. Um, so okay, so you, you're starting to do that, and this is when you're still back in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to Rome, and um, are you starting to like pick up books and? Oh, my heavens. Well, I always had a book in my hand. My, my mother always laughs that, that in all the photographs she has of us kind of at public events, by which I mean going to her friends or being out at a picnic or whatever, I'm always the one with the book in front of her. Right. <laughs> I just have the book with me, right? Right? Me and everyone else you've talked to, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people. Not everyone, yeah. I mean, but, you know, it's, it seems to be the common thread. And so... Um, you know, when you're when you're in Italy and you're at this American school, yeah. uh, did you have good teachers there as well who were sort of nudging you along? Was it re were you recognized for your writing? Um, I guess I was just recognized in in more general ways. There wasn't a lot of creative writing. I don't remember in 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 those. In, I'm trying to think. There just wasn't really a lot of creative writing. I mean, we were writing journals, we were writing papers. You know, of course, by the time we were in high school. I don't remember a lot of creative writing. Is that possible? Or did I just uh, 
my misremembering because again, I have no memory. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, okay. So, was, what about like what about the reentry? Because yeah. that seems like an interesting moment as well. Oh. You, you have these six years in Rome, and then suddenly, yeah. suddenly you're back where you're in Brookline, Massachusetts. Brookline, Massachusetts. I went to the public high school in Brookline and um, ended up in a, in an alternative school within that public high school called a school within a school and. And I think I applied to go wait, there because wait, I thought, wait, it, no. That, that's, what? that's what it was called? The school yes. within a school? Yes. Okay, yes. It was a huge high school, one of those big, huge public high schools, the only one in the whole town. And this was a small school of maybe, I don't know, 100 kids that were in 10th, 11th, 12th grades. And we had the upper floor, the top floor. And we were kind of, um, well, we had, I can tell you all about it. It had its, it had its own kind of ideology and so on. But but I applied to it because I thought it was like a little prep school. <laughs> it was kind of the opposite of that. But it, it, it saved me from huge culture shock because I didn't have to go from this tiny, tiny high school, which had maybe 100 people in Rome, to this mammoth public high school in, in, in Brookline. Right. Um, but the school within a school was – it was a, a really a terrific little institution for – in part for people who are who have kind of extra inquisitive and curious and – and creative, and also in part for some folks who just weren't necessarily going to make it in the in the main school because they needed, they just needed a different environment. So it was um, it was a lot of very interesting people, and uh, the whole thing behind it was that we were sort of self governing. That is self governing to the extent that we could within a public high school, and we had meetings, and we you know contributed to the discussion of who was going to be hired and things like that. And it was all it was all based on Lawrence Kohlberg's theory of moral development. Believe it or not, um, he was he was studying us. We were among his um, among his guinea pigs. Oh, really? Being, yeah, the idea being that if you participate in democratic structures, your your moral development will be accelerated and will. I, I may be misrepresenting him, but that's my recollection. Do, do you think it, do you think it was effective? <laughs> well, you know what? We all knew the answer of the final question. So <laughs> we all knew that Hans should break the window of the pharmacy and steal the um the the uh the medicine that would save his wife's life because um because that would uh that because the the the, the saving a life was the higher ethical choice. So we all knew the answer to that. So our pre and post test was kind of uh, a little bit rigged. Yeah, well no, but that's good. It's like one of those schools it's one of those schools where students are given more choice. Is that that's what it sounds like, right? Yeah, and and we were given sort of a voice, and we 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 called our teachers by their first names, and we had couches. I mean, it was it was in part it was an aesthetic thing, you know. In part it was um, in part it was we did have we did make some choices. Because um, my my wife my wife is like yeah. like in our in our parenting like I've read not yeah. I've read not one single book on parenting. Yeah. Out um, of some sort of we I think it's a combination of like fear and disgust or something uh-huh. like. And but my wife is always like, well, the book says, and I'm like, don't uh-huh. tell me what the book says. And it's like, I guess the book says that kids are supposed to have choices. And uh-huh. I'm always telling my daughter, I'm like, you know what, you're a really smart little girl. And, and my, my wife's like, the book says, don't tell him that. <laughs> I'm like, shit, I can't even tell my daughter she's smart. I'm trying not to tell her that she's beautiful. You know, it's like you can't do anything right. But I do think that it's smart to be like, well, you have a choice and you've got to make a decision. And yeah, that seems logical. I think. Tell- your daughter she's smart and she's beautiful for heaven's sake i think so too i mean you know I, and i think, I think daughters know. need to hear that from their dad that's right that's my theory there you go but i don't want to put wife, i said so i don't yeah i don't want to put too much pressure on her either she's like okay oh, and i have no children i feel free to say that i feel free to give you advice <laughs> you better be a you better be a beautiful genius for daddy that's what I mean. <laughs> no pressure 
so okay, so you were in the school within a school. What yeah. was there a school within the school within the school? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like how many how many layers were there to this thing? <laughs> Oh, that's such a metaphysical question. <laughs> <laughs> but I, mercifully, there was just two. I, you know. There was just two. There okay. Just... Okay. So you arrive. You're back from Italy, <laughs> and like a, I'm, I'm, you know, a parallel experience. But I think at a, a different time in life would be like returning from like a semester abroad uh, in college, which yeah. is which is when I think uh, people are often at their very worst. Like, there's nothing worse than a <laughs> college student smugly returning from a semester abroad. <laughs> feeling like they know like everything about life so when you arrive back in like you know provincial brookline massachusetts from like your roman holiday did you feel like oh my god these peasants they have seen nothing they have not stared at the trevi fountain i wish i had been that confident a young person (laughs) to have felt so arrogant and smug Uh, no mostly i was like wow these people have all known each other since they were four years old Uh you know here i am but look at the awful, awful pizza they're eating. How does they know that this is very, very bad pizza? It's tombstone. <laughs> I did have that. I did that sense of superiority about pizza. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> okay, so did you? I mean, what were you like? Were you were you picked on? Did you have any? Did oh, you, did you have trouble assimilating? Like, I mean, I, I know how cruel kids can be. I had that when no. I was. No, I mean, was, again, I, I was I was in a very polite school to start with. I mean, Brookline High, Brookline, Brookline itself is a very you know nice, tony little suburb of Boston, or maybe it's within the city limits of Boston, but it has a feeling of a suburb, and, and school within a school was a very accepting, you know, warm place to be, and, and, and no, I made friends, I was just, you know, I was just shy, and, yeah. and, and, yeah, shy and 16, yeah, I'm a little less shy then, but not a lot more. Right, okay, so, uh, but shy can be kind of like, I think shy can actually kind of help, uh, like I, I, I was like I moved and I like walked in and like tried to not be shy. That can get you in trouble. <laughs> Sometimes it's better to just keep your mouth shut and like you know. You were doing that eighth grade thing that worked so well for you. Yeah, I don't know. You know, like I just I remember. Uh, I'm trying to remember back, but like the first year was the big assimilation year, sixth grade, and that was uh-huh. that was where it was hard. You know, because you were yeah. trying to like make friends and like kind yeah. of normalize yourself and. Um, you know, I'm a verbal person. I'll talk, and you uh-huh. know, but then I was also terrified, and every, uh-huh. and everyone else, which I didn't know at the time, everyone else was terrified too. Yes. Uh, so it's not like the greatest combination. But I, <laughs> no. I, some of my like people who went on to become good friends of mine, I remember uh-huh. like very early on, were like extraordinarily mean. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. is that a boy thing, or is that just the luck of a draw? Oh, you know, who knows? I mean, it was definitely a boy thing in my neck of the woods. But I remember yeah. like a guy that went on to become like my best friend, who I'm or one of my best friends who I'm still in touch with today, um, that sixth grade year told me that I, I had to stay 10 feet away from him at all times. But <laughs> <laughs> if I came within 10 feet of him, he was going to like punch me. And I was like, oh. and so I'd see him and I'd be like, Jesus, like, how do I measure this? And like, we, <laughs> but uh, we went on to become friends. I eventually, I eventually won him over. <laughs> I, I've experienced very little meanness in my entire life, to be frank. I, 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 um, I guess I'm, 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 very lucky that way. Very lucky. So what's my problem? Am I like a, <laughs> am, I, am, I, am, I a, am I a magnet for human cruelty? <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm lucky. It's the luck of the draw. I'm sure. I'm sure I deserved as much meanness as the next person, oh. as the next weirdo who came in from out of town. Yeah, but you know what? That's what I'm saying though. Is that like sometimes the like the shy person or the person uh-huh. who's who's got a little bit more reserve, they don't uh-huh. they don't open themselves up. There's something about your energy, you know. Uh-huh. Um, which would which would imply that there's something about my energy that 
that in, so I'm not gonna, that I'm invites, not gonna that invites savagery. Um, at least from you know, adole- from an adolescent perspective. But yeah. um, okay, so high school, uh, yeah. the writerliness yeah. and the bookishness yeah. continues. Yeah, oh yeah. And yeah. so, where did you go I to was college? Very academic as well. So I mean, I wasn't just writing and booking. I was I was studying and and and, and working hard always. Good student. Always. Straight A's. Always. Valedictorian. Never. Never. No, no, no. Sixteen hundred on your SATs? No, 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 no. So okay, I, I'm always fishing for that. I've always, I've asked people on this show, and it, it's a strange question to ask people if you ever want to try it out. People are sort of, people are sort of protective of their SAT score. I'll be like, "What'd you get on your SATs?" And they're like, "I don't want to talk about it." Or, or they often say, "I can't remember," and I think that's bullshit. I think everybody remembers what they got on their SATs. Um, well, it was a long, long time ago. It was. A, I did get a perfect score on my GRE language. How's that? Okay, good for you. Okay. Did that satisfy? Yeah, I, and then I, I also have a thing about fetishizing genius. Like I love when people tell me that they like. <laughs> you, know, you got a sixteen hundred. Okay, so I'm talking to a complete genius right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but good student, uh, and you know, uh, doing your homework, not giving yeah, your, your parents trouble. You know, you never, were, never. Okay. <laughs> God, you were you easy. Just got the type, right? Yeah, like no fights with. I mean, students were nice to you. You lived in a peaceful Boston suburb. <laughs> Sounds true. perfect. It's true. Um, okay, so then, what about college? Did you go to college? I went to college. I went to Yale. Holy shit! Okay, so that's good. Yeah, it was good. It was good. I I, I picked Yale first of all because it wasn't in Boston, and I felt like I needed to get away from home, um, and. Because they had a they had a, a academic program that I was really interested in, which by the time I got there, kind of wasn't offered anymore. <laughs> well, what but, was it? Well, it was kind of offered. It was like a four year program of European of European studies. So you study art and literature and architecture and and history, and it was all combined. And so the first freshman year, you would have studied classics, and the next year, you would have studied medieval renaissance. It was maybe the equivalent of two or three courses. And so it was very intensive, and, and that sounded just grand to me. But when I got there my freshman year, the um, the classics portion wasn't offered that year. And by the time I was a sophomore, I just had moved on. Um, but that's... <laughs> and that's, that, that's how I ended up... That's one of the reasons I ended up at Yale. And you said you picked. So what, what, were, your, what were the other options? Oh, Seriously. Seriously? I don't know. What did you choose between? Uh, well, I chose between Harvard, Yale, and Brown. My God. Wesleyan waitlisted me. This I do remember. <laughs> right? <laughs> With great fury. <laughs> um, wow, that's, uh, that's impressive. So you go and, you, and uh, this education that you got at Yale, um, and yeah. forgive me if I'm misunderstanding, but you said that this program was, was no longer offered when you arrived, or it's, it's, it has There's since been discontinued? The of it. The first uh, year of it, the classics year, was not offered that year. So by the time I had the option of taking it my sophomore year, but by that t- time I'd already moved on. Oh, uh, okay. Interested in other things. But, but you got a good education. Um, were, yeah. you, were you nursing literary ambitions? What did you think you were going to do when you were a uh, college oh, student? I had no idea. I studied philosophy. I, you know, I had no idea. I graduated college, and I just I thought maybe I would move to Spain. I just didn't have any clue whatsoever. I think... The, the moments that I might have had literary ambition were quickly crushed when I, you know, thought that I was no James Joyce. You know, that, that feeling? Right. Yeah. <laughs> every, every, every single day, Rachel. <laughs> and not being James Joyce, I reckoned I had basically no business picking up a pen. And that, 
But that lasted about 25 years. Sorry. But, you're, but you're like, maybe I can live in exile. I'll at least get that done. I'll go to Spain. Yeah. <laughs> and I never got to Spain, but oh, I ended up, I ended up, you know, just really casting about because I had, I had, I had no, no interest in working for the man, so to speak. I just was a little bit, I was lost. I was kind of lost. In a pretty good way, but still pretty lost. Okay, so let's talk yeah. about this lostness because oh, I think yeah, I, okay. I think I share this with you, and I think Is like it, yeah. Okay, so, because I want to talk. I have some guilt about this. Like I have okay. a really, I have a really hard time. Um, you know, like I never had a desire to work for the man either. Does anybody? <laughs> does anybody? Uh, but some people, I think, they can fit themselves in. Other yeah. people, maybe they they just never think they have a choice, and they yeah. do it as a matter of necessity. So like. Yeah. Is there some sort of privilege inherent in even being like, I can't work for the man? I mean, it's not that I don't want to work hard. I'll work my ass off. But I just have a, yeah. I have a really hard time fitting into like those uh, traditional structures, it seems yeah. like. Is that how you are? I guess so. I guess so. And I don't know. You used the word privilege. I'm not sure what you meant by that. But well, I, I mean, mean I, certainly... I, like, I guess I'm trying to, to – like, to, uh, excavate my sense of, of guilt yeah. like, is there something uh, like, is, it, is it a character defect that i'm feeling this way or is this no. like an, is this okay <laughs> no i think we were born this way okay good i do and that still may make it a character defect but i don't, I don't know how much control we have <laughs> you're, over it. you're like brad, you're like brad you were born with this really bad flaw <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. right but no but i think that the, i think there's some truth to that like it's like in your why i mean and i think it's yeah. in the writerly wiring you yeah, know i mean I, do. For, I totally do because it's a very common thread i mean i know yeah. that there there are writers uh, out there plenty of them and many of whom have been on this show who are working day jobs uh, by necessity and then yes. trying to write their way out of their cubicle essentially yeah. um which is yeah. a, di- a difficult task but yeah. um you know it's just it's just really hard and i find myself in some ways sort of envying people who can assimilate into those situations more yeah. easily because it's like oh god you know uh, it, it's, I mean, I don't really envy them, but I kind of do in, in much the same way that I envy people who can like, uh, you know, be like ducks to water with like organized religion because, oh God, it would be so comfortable to just like not have doubt and, you know, like well, you, you, you envy their ability not to have, not to be limited in any way. I mean, they're, they're our, our, we are limited by our, our need for freedom, sort of, sort of, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and that can limit our options, doesn't it? And, you know, it's meant it's meant I don't have a very large savings account, but you know, I, I have worked very hard, you know, but it's been, I've only had a couple of full-time jobs, maybe a total of five years in my entire life. And, and, you know, that's a lot of working years. I've had a full-time job and um, now I do freelance work and it's, it's, so much it so better suits my temperament as I, I assume you must do something along those lines as well well yeah i mean the thing about freelance work though is that it's like uh it's like all or nothing you know what i'm saying yeah, like some sure. some months yeah. you're like some months you're like i'm gonna be rich and then like the next, <laughs> the next month you're like oh shit like you know like so you kind of have to be willing to ride that roller coaster you know? oh it's a big and, and i have no i have no dependence so um for me it's it's a lot Easier to ride that roller coaster, I imagine, than someone with a family. Yeah, no, it's like my whole world has been shifting. My my daughter's three, and like this is. Oh like, boy! I've been I've been babbling about this like either uh, directly or in code on this show for a while now. But it's like I'm going through transitions, trying to figure out like getting something full time, and if we're going to yeah. have another kid and. Having kids changes the calculus, you know. I think that it does. um, does, I mean, you know, it's great, and I would never change a thing. But I think just from a purely writerly perspective, um, it's a lot easier, you know, to make choices around your writing and to get the writing to get the writing done. You know, it's just uh, so you know. But people do it, and I'm gonna, you know, I got to figure out my little way. I don't think there, like, sadly, there's not just like one way. 
It would be great if there was just like one way and like this is what you do. And someone could clue you in. Yes, just tell me the way. I'll do whatever Here's you say. The way. <laughs> yeah, right. There should just be a book out there called The Way. Um, there probably is, but you don't want to spend money on it. No, exactly. <laughs> or maybe I should write it. Just uh, it'll be my meal go. ticket. I would read it. <laughs> right. I would read it. Just a, just a three hundred pages of just like really shiny lies. <laughs> Um, yeah. So okay, so you get out of college from Yale. Mm. You've got this fancy degree, um, mm. and what what do you do? You're casting about. You never went to Spain, so what happened? I didn't go to Spain. Um, you know, the summer before I graduated from college, I went overseas. I went to you know went to Europe with my sister and other people, and backpacked around. And when I was in southern France, I ran into this jazz festival. It was the Grand Parade du Jazz in Nice. And it was in three different stages, and it was the most transfixing thing I thought I'd ever seen. And, and I'd been a jazz DJ at Yale and, and loved jazz. And <clears throat> because I had nothing to lose, and I guess I, <laughs> I really didn't know what life was like, I, uh, I sent a letter to the producer of the festival, who was George Ween, who uh, I later learned was also the producer of the Newport Jazz Festival and lots of other festivals besides. And I just asked him for a job, and he gave me one. My and God. I, so that's how it works. I, I, I mean, he, you know, he first he had me come up for um, part of the Cool Jazz Festival. I did a, like a 10-day thing, call it an internship, whatever. Um, and I guess just to make sure I could get along with people I was, or that I was, you know, capable. And, uh, and I guess within six months of writing the letter, I had a, a full-time job in New York and had moved here. Oh, okay. So uh, the, it, the job was in – he was based in New York and not he's in – He was based South- in New York, yes. He was based in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I moved. And I, I worked for him for a couple of years, and, and um, you know, I look back now and think it was just one of the most extraordinary things that could have happened to a person. I guess at that time, you kind of don't have the same perspective. And, and I did understand that it was something special, but I don't think I understood truly how special it was. Well, um, I, you know, but I always – like I was um, – adjuncting, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. over the years have told my students repeatedly mm-hmm. uh, to be the squeaky wheel because I think that like all throughout life, it, 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 it can never hurt to just ask for what you want or to send okay, that letter okay. or to send that email. But I think it's an, it's especially, uh, it's an especially ripe time to do that when you're young and you're just mm-hmm. coming out of college, A, because the person you're sending the letter to will know that they don't have to pay you very much. <laughs> Um, and then B, I think, I think most people have a certain affection for, um, earnest young people trying Mm -hmm. to like get a foothold. And I think Mm -hmm. like, you know, if there's an opportunity to kind of give somebody a break and give them a shot to see what they can do, like they'll, you know, it's worth a shot. I think it can happen, but people don't do it. I think a lot of, I think especially women don't do it. Yeah. I think women wait to be asked or something. I, I, you know, I'm generalizing of course, but I, I think it's, I think they're less likely to just ask their way into a job. Than, than are men of the same age, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, later George said to me, uh, he said, he, maybe it was even when he, when he interviewed me, um, he looked at my resume and he said, you know, there was something here that interested me, but now I can't remember what it was. It was the school within a school. That's what would have interested me. I would have been like, oh, my God. This, this young... I think, frankly, I think it was the fact that I mentioned on my CV, which because there was really very little to mention otherwise, that I was a Red Sox fan, and, and he was originally from Boston, and I think maybe that was what caught his eye, but he didn't want to admit it later. That's good, though. You know, that, like, <laughs> honestly, like you know uh-huh. that like that kind of like uh, intense sports fandom can connect people. Yeah. Or at least, um, they, go ahead. Or just at least make him think to himself, like, well, she can't be that bad. You know, That's right. <laughs> she likes the Red Sox. <laughs> That's right. 
Well, they used to tell us that, didn't they, when we were just starting out? You know, put something on your resume that that's human, that makes you know people can can relate to. And I I I don't think they'd probably do that anymore. Do they? I, don't, I mean, I still have. I think at the tail end of my resume that like I hiked the Appalachian Trail. I should probably take that off. <laughs> no. Because I feel like that's the most interesting thing I'll ever do. Like I, you it's know, an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, so it's like at least it's a talking something people can talk about with me. You know. Well, it's an accomplishment. I mean, being a Red Sox fan, well, for many years it actually was an accomplishment. <laughs> <but> <laughs> maybe not. Now it's now it's now it's like a lug, now it's like a luxury. You get to like you get to vicariously feel like a champion like every that's two years. Five. Yeah. You just walk around luxuriating in your, you know, it's, yeah, you, but you no longer have the sympathy of the nation, you know, you've lost that as the lovable losers or whatever. Yeah. But I have the memory of it. Yes. You're right. You're like, I lived through it and now I am very pleased to be a world champion. That's right. Uh, so, okay. So two things, two things I want to ask you about in terms of your, uh, you know, your affinities. Uh, You mentioned that you were a jazz DJ in college. Yeah. What was your entry point for jazz? Like, how did you get into jazz? Oh, well, it was my mother. Because she, she, you know, after after her stint being a uh, a pianist for the gospel group, um, she herself became uh, really interested in jazz. And and so by the time we were in, in Brookline, she was listening to a lot of jazz. And and you know, my my entry point was not the maybe the most difficult jazz in the world, but um, but it got more sophisticated as 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 my ears opened and as I became more whatever as I as I listened to more. Um, but it would have been it would have been through her. See, I like jazz too. I mean, I I don't know how, I, I don't know how sophisticated you are in your. Uh, oh, it, mm, nah. yeah. I mean, I love it. I, I like to listen to it. I think a lot of writers like to listen to music mm. um, that has an ambient quality because it, mm-hmm. you know, when you start to get lyrics involved, it messes oh, me no. up. I can't do it. Does so, that mean you, you listen to music when you write? Sometimes in the background, like a little yeah. um, you know, or on headphones if I'm trying to drown out the sound of my wailing daughter. <laughs> <laughs> she cries out for food. Um, <laughs> That's a joke, people. Uh, I know. Okay. I know. I'm just trying to make sure the audience isn't like, "Oh my God, he's a monster." <laughs> um, but you know, uh, you know, sometimes you have to, or the neighbor, or there's like construction yeah. noise or whatever it is. But you know, yeah, yeah. so over the years, you start to listen to it, and yeah. um, you know, I think I grew up going to New Orleans with my family because my folks are from down that way, and um, oh. you know, being in New Orleans, you start, you know, that's sort of in the air. And yeah, did you ever go to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival? I never have been. Yeah, you know that was one of our festivals. I never got there either. I I always regretted that. Yeah, I, I mean, mm-hmm. people have the thing about it though. I got to be honest. Like the older mm-hmm. I, the older I get, the less appealing the festival. Like you know, mm-hmm. st- standing in like a muddy field, like with yeah. The, I'm just like you know what? I like to be. I'm sort of a snob about concert going. I like uh-huh. to be in a smaller venue, and uh, I don't like stadium shows typically. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I like to have really good seats. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> otherwise, just like I'll I'll buy the album or you know what I'm saying. Like I just if I'm gonna go to all the trouble to go see it, I want to see it in a certain way. And yeah. um, I go to the Hollywood Bowl out here in Los Angeles sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's nice because you can like bring your own wine and you know food or huh. whatever. But you're way up, and unless you're not, I guess. Yeah. But it's just like it's too big. I, I don't feel like any connection to the what's happening on stage really. Yeah, and maybe it's like the difference between watching a baseball game in per- in, in person when you're up in the bleachers and you can't really see anything, right? Or on TV where you get the instant replay. Yeah, well, you know. Right? Or I, I got to say though, I'm like I, I I cannot watch baseball like and, and forgive me because I know this is sacrilege for somebody who loves the Red Sox. <laughs> like baseball love in that part of the country is like so intense, but yeah, um, you know the the season is really long. So 100, yeah. 162 games. It's hard yeah. like in game 34 to get me like emotionally invested. Uh-huh. Um, 
but I do like to watch the World Series when there's like actual like you know chips on the table and the uh-huh. things things really count. And any game uh, of baseball, I would love to go and sit in the stadium and just like eat junk food and like watch them play. Like there's something really aesthetically pleasing about being in a baseball stadium. It is such an excuse to eat a hot dog, right? Yeah. Well, I don't eat uh, meat, but I will eat. Oh. I will eat a lot of peanuts, and I will eat. Uh, <laughs> I took my daughter to see her first Dodgers game, and like, uh, oh. it was all about the cotton candy. It was like, <laughs> the baseball. The, yeah, the baseball <laughs> mattered not at all, and of course, but and I was there like taking selfies with my phone. It was it was more. <laughs> what I've discovered as a parent is that a lot of it, like you say, it's for your kid, but it's really for you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking, it's nominally this like you know kind gesture, but really it's just me like trying to relive something, but. Um, <laughs> You know, it's fun to be in the stadium. And I think that there is a nostalgia for me because my dad would take me to games when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Um, and, but there's also a nostalgia for me more broadly because baseball has been supplanted by football as like the national pastime in a way that feels indisputable to me. Uh-huh. And I think that that um, says something sad about our country. Not because, because uh-huh. I, you know, listen, I like to watch football too. I'm a sports fan. I can get uh-huh. into a game. But there, you know, football is like this hyper violent. Uh-huh. Um, there's just carnage. Like people are getting their yeah. necks broken and their legs snapped, and you know it's like gladiator sport. And like uh-huh. you know, there was a line from a writer, and I'm totally forgetting who who said it, but she said like you know America used to be baseball and now it's football. Interesting. And I think that's so true. Like baseball is this beautiful game, and it's slow and meditative, and you sit there in the stands, and there's strategy, and it's not violent. <laughs> yeah, and right. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, at the same time, at the same time, you know, baseball is getting record television contracts. There, there, there's enormous amounts of money going into the game that's from right. television and so on. So I, I, I think that means that a lot, a lot of people are watching it. But no maybe you're not talking about absolute numbers of viewers, but rather kind of its place in our national consciousness. It's yeah. I mean, I think I mean baseball's. I mean, hugely popular still. It's not uh, like it's not like it's fallen off. But I, I think it's pretty obvious that the NFL is like. Uh, the sport it's like the sunday yeah, religion and you know yeah. um i don't know i may and maybe yeah. maybe it's it's going to shift back but it just feels that way to me so yeah. um you know along the same lines as like you know your your my question about your jazz love like where did the base uh, where did the baseball love originate oh that was that was from my dad probably we used to go to even um back in back in the day there was a, a I guess it was a single A farm club, Red Sox farm club in Bristol, which is quite near Hartford. Well, and we used to go to that. Home of ESPN, Sorry? right? Yeah, oh, that's right. Now famous for that reason. At that time, there was at that time there was a little, um, you know, the double. I mean, single A, which is like the really young kids, um, most of whom won't make it to the big leagues. And we we went to Fenway Park a number of times, and um, yeah, we used to listen to uh, we used to listen to it on the radio. We didn't always have it on. I don't think we had it on television, but we could watch on the radio. This is before the days of cable and such. We could hear it on the radio, and by the time I lived in um, uh, in Brookline, of course, I was just down the road from Fenway Park, and, and you could still afford to go then, yeah. <laughs> so I went quite a lot. Now it's like this thing, you know? Like, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I want to go to yeah. Fenway. I've never been to Fenway. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I've been out. I've stood outside it and, like, looked up at it longingly <laughs> in the winter, but I've never, like, <laughs> actually seen a game there. It's on my list, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, Hampton Yards is another great one, the one in Baltimore. That's a, a terrific stadium yeah. to visit. It may not be quite as expensive as a Red Sox game. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, it, it seems like it should be. Come on. It should be $10 to go to a baseball game. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you, but... 
um, at least oh, for the bleachers, you know. Yeah, something, you know, just yeah. get people in the door. So, yeah. uh, to get back to writing, you know, yeah. like when did uh, you know? Like you said you kind of knocked around for twenty five years. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Uh, how did that? How, did, how does it all figure in? Because I know you were publishing shorter pieces and then building up to the novel and like. Yeah, my my math is a little bit off, so it was more like fifteen years. Um, I started writing. I decided I was going to be a writer. I mean, actually decided in my mid thirties, and um, and I, I quit my job and I went off to the I went off to the, the ocean and I started writing and then I took some classes and and, uh, and I went and got my you know my degree at Johns Hopkins and writing seminars and and then started publishing short stories. Um, but it, it did take a long time for me to work my way to that point where I could say, yeah, I. I want to do this. It may not matter if I can do it, but I want to. Why, I'm try. What was like, do you have some pivotal moment or like, what, uh, no, you just built up. No, this? no, I do. You mean like when I made that decision? Yeah. Like what was it? Uh, you know, I was, I was back in Boston. I was living and working in, in Watertown, Mass, which is just outside of uh, Boston, just outside of, outside of Cambridge and um, working full time, doing the same work I do now, but as a full time person. And I was seeing somebody who was a, a lovely guy who was somebody I actually worked with, um, but who was very creative himself and kind of a poet and a painter. And, and, and I had started doodling around. You know, I just had started writing this really crazy thing, and I showed it to him, and, and he encouraged me. And, and somehow that made a difference. And, and more specifically, there was the time um, I decided to uh, leave work and take a year off. And I was going to go to Israel, and I was going to go study in Israel. And uh, and he, who I was dating at the time, he, he looked at me and said, you know, if you want to be a writer, why are you going off to study in Israel? Why don't you go to the ocean and write? And it was like, uh, yeah, sometimes you just have to hear things from the right person, the right thing at the right time from the right person for everything to make sense. And at that moment, we were in um, the Kiev Kiev diner, <laughs> the 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 the, the much lamented, late departed um, Kiev diner in, uh, in in Manhattan, and he said that to me, and it just everything everything changed. Um, so okay, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm imagining people uh, listening at home, scribbling in their <laughs> notebooks, go to the ocean and write, <laughs> writing it on their forearms like a, like Eddie Vedder. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, go go to the ocean, and 20 years later, <laughs> yeah, you right. too will publish a book. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm assuming this is the Atlantic Ocean that you immediately went With, to. I waited not five minutes. Yeah, I walked. Um, I walked out of the Kiev diner and immediately <laughs> went to the ocean. And I got on the on a commuter train and went to Gloucester, Massachusetts. Yeah, I was in Rockport, Massachusetts, which is a very beautiful town on the north shore of Massachusetts. I was there for two years. The first year was glorious. I was all alone, and it was in this striking, beautiful, you know, landscape. These ro- on the rocky shore. Wait, wait, but and- what, what happened to the guy? He's like, go to the ocean. <laughs> He's like, go to the ocean and write, and I'm going to stay in New York. And uh... he moved to Peru, and uh, and no sooner did he arrive, and he, he he sent me an email saying he was in love with another woman. That was he's kind of like what he's like I just did I, I just did ayahuasca in the jungle, and everything has changed. Yeah, yeah it was actually no, I won't go in, I won't go into details. I will I will restrain myself. But, okay, okay. Uh, but it, it 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 very much seemed like he was sort of like. Um, one of those angels from, from like the Hebrew Bible that just kind of appears out of nowhere to deliver a message and then disappears just as quickly. Um, so, he, you know, he, he, we didn't last as an item, but his, his influence was beneficial. Well, do you have his number? Maybe I can call him up and he can, <laughs> right. can tell me what to do. 
<laughs> might have to sleep with him first. Yeah, well, I'll do whatever, I'll do whatever it takes, Rachel. <laughs> right. Well, you can, you can take his advice that you gave me and, and, uh, and, and do what you will with it. Go to the ocean and write. That sounds like a good plan. I mean, it's as good yeah. a plan as any. I mean, and, you know, <laughs> the reality is that if you're going to try to do this, you have to be self-taught. Like, I know that there can be academic structures to support it, and they can work wonderfully. Um, particularly, I think from a time perspective, just giving you mm-hmm. time and time and community. But uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, in terms of actually learning the trade, there's yeah. only, there's only so much that a person can tell you. It comes down to practice, and it comes yeah. it comes down to cultivating your influences and really studying, you know, what moves you and why, you know, yeah. uh, in terms of the writers that you're a fan of and so on. I, I agree to a certain extent, although I really needed a course correction by by external others. Um, so, you know, after, after a year of, of being in Rockport and writing on my own and, and frankly thinking I was the biggest genius that had ever written anything. <laughs> <laughs> standing, on that, I, standing on that rocky shore, just like holding exactly, pages up. <laughs> conversing with the ocean. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I took a few classes and, and instead of being, you know, anointed, I was, I was uh, kind of smacked around a little bit and, and that was enormously helpful. Um, and then, you know, I took class, I took, you know, went and got my master's and, and, you know, the, the stuff I was writing then is very much not what I'm writing now, but it was, an, it was useful to get the feedback. It was useful to get a kind of a critical habit going. And it was useful to be criticized in the sense of, of developing a, uh, I don't know, a thick skin and an open mind to well, what other people have to say. You know, I, I think back to the first workshop I took in graduate school. Yeah. Maybe then it was maybe like the, the simplest and most critical lesson, and it was yeah. a lesson that was repeated. But I remember I, I handed something in that was yeah. sort of like what I would have called back then like experimental, or uh-huh. it was really rambly and uh-huh. you know, conversational. And I just remember uh-huh. like everyone started giving feedback, and they were all saying the same thing. And it's like you know we don't understand this, and uh-huh. it's just too, like to. it's too much. Yeah, we would like to, and it's like you know that might be the most important function of being uh-huh. in a, a writing group or an MFA program. Yeah is that, oh, my God, there's really going to be a person that yeah. you're, you're trying to reach another person, so you better yeah. com- communicate with them clearly in a way that they right. can understand. And like, right, right, uh, not from, just about you. Yeah, and for, yeah, exactly. It's not just you, like, gazing, like, into the, you know, or, you know horizon or, or into your or the name. brilliance of your own eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you, there's going to be somebody at the other end of the line, so you better be yeah. talking to them. Yeah, yep. And I, yeah, never, I, mean, you know, it, I never did. Uh, I never did write anything nearly as rambly. I mean, it really did. It was. A, it was a one-time shot. I got it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Not, not to say that I wrote great stuff from that point forward, but it, yeah. I definitely wrote stuff that people could could uh, hear. You know. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I I look back and I, I I try to put my finger on things I learned. You know, capital T, capital L, and and it wasn't so much things as it is a process. And and as you say, having the the, the gift of time and and. And community, and to kind of being able to call yourself finally a writer, you know, a real writer, and because you're writing all the time, and people are treating you seriously as a writer, all that's all that's nice. You live um, at the ocean. I mean, come on. <laughs> until I mean, until the second year rolls around, and you actually become lonely as lonely <laughs> as shit, and you're bored, and you have to leave the ocean because. You know, in the end, it's it's not just about you, as you say. Well, okay. So, were you were you like <laughs> I'm picturing you, and like was the house like on the beach, or was it? In the... Oh, you know, I was in an 18th century sail loft in in this little little spit of land called Bearskin Neck, which is where all the tourists go in in Rockport because it was all where all the old little buildings are, and I was right there in the middle of it. So during tourist season, and we were crowded with uh, people, and during the off season, it was just this stark, fantastic wind. Wet 
like I'm picturing like the, the perfect storm and like witch trials. That's all that I'm thinking. Of. <laughs> Said it. The perfect storm was very close by. The witch trials, maybe not quite so close, but okay. yeah, yeah. You you get the general idea. Right. It was a dry town, actually. Rockport was a dry town in that old New England way. There was no no alcohol served in uh, in Rockport at that time. Was that a problem for you? Or you <laughs> no, it was not. No, you don't strike me. You don't strike me as a heavy drinker. Or like, did <laughs> a, you never had like a drug. You didn't go crazy and do a bunch of drugs at Yale. I didn't. I no. really didn't. Well, there's no. still there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to school and, and, and get that taken care of. No, but I mean, I've sometimes like half jokingly said, you know, people should wait until they're like 80. And then <laughs> I, I think that I think that uh, all drugs at the very least should be decriminalized for people over the age of 80. Like if you if, if you get that far, let people should. As just... long as they don't, as long as they don't, you know, not counter. In, you know, what's the what's the term? Um, uh, counterindicated. I can't remember the word. Uh, with with all the other medications you're taking, as long as they don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and they yeah. and and then as long as they're not driving, which they shouldn't be doing at the age of 80 anyway. <laughs> Just stay home and you're lazy boy and do your drugs. <laughs> oh my God! Oh, dear, dear, well, dear, okay, well, yeah. so now here you are uh, yeah, right. on the eve of your your launch. Um, yeah, this is it. Today's the day. How does it feel? Is it? Have you been to a bookstore to like gently caress your book yet? <laughs> well, no, no. It, it yesterday I was at a community bookstore, which is the bookstore closest to me, and, and I guess the closest thing I have to a neighborhood bookstore. It's in Park Slope, uh, Brooklyn. And I was there to sign pre-order copies of my book, and that was a very happy moment. The very first books I've signed. Yeah. Um, so that was that was a nice that was a nice moment. I walked in and had, I introduced myself to the guys and said, "Where are my books? I'm here to sign." And he looked at me blankly. No, just kidding. Uh, no, I've, got, I've I've gotten that look actually <laughs> for real. <laughs> I'm here to sign, and they're like, "Oh, so what? Do you know?" <laughs> we are we are Brooklyn. We are we are so full of authors. You are you are just one of many. Right. So they were very, they were very accommodating, and they took pictures. It was <laughs> a little mini event, um, but I have not been out on the rain. It's raining here, and uh, I have not been out today. Tomorrow I will be at Greenlight Books, and I will certainly see books in their native habitat tomorrow. Wow! And uh, yeah, yeah, that's it's, a big moment. I, I, you know, I think like going forward, if you're anything like me anyway, you will. Yeah. It will be hard, especially being in like New York and having all those bookstores around. Like if you're walking around, yeah. if you're walking around and you pass a bookstore, it's going to be. I think it's going to be hard for you to resist, like not going in to like check on your book. The stock. Yeah, and I, well, maybe know, to, to turn it face outwards so that people can see it. Oh yeah, I've, I've shamelessly done that many times, and <laughs> put it on put it on the on the table that you're supposed to pay for. Right, right, <laughs> up at the front of Barnes and Noble. Yeah, that's and, right. That's but right. Uh, put it into the window. Yeah, whatever it takes, Rachel. <laughs> But I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, the metaphor that I always use, it's like going to visit your friend in the hospital. You're like, I got to go check on my book. Like, see, <laughs> got to go see how he's doing, you know. In the Jewish world, that's a mitzvah, you know. That's like a, that's like a, a good deed. So if you're telling me it's a good deed to check on my, um, on my book in the bookstores, obsessively even, I, I will, uh, I will, I'll, uh, I'll follow your, uh, your advice. Yeah, no, it's a mitzvah. But it's not, I mean, and shiva is when you're sitting for a dead person, right? Yes. Okay. So it's not that. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that at all. Let's hope it's not that at all. So yeah. So I, if I see your book, I will, and I do this for people um, yeah. that I know or that I've talked to. Like I, I will yeah. if I'm in like Barnes and Noble or some yeah. bookstore, and I, I see their book, I'll, I'll, I'll flip it face out. I'm not above Good that. On you. That's a mitzvah for a book, right? That's it. You, you are a friend to authors. <laughs> well, I try. <laughs> I try to be. I know. Okay. I know. I know what they go through, but. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm happy for you. This is exciting. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank enjoy, you so much. enjoy the moment. And uh, yeah. thank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Brad. Thank you so much for having me here. Okay, there you go. That is Rachel Cantor. Go get her novel, A Highly Unlikely Scenario. 
it's not a highly unlikely scenario that you'll get her novel. The title of the book is a highly unlikely scenario. It's out there now from Melville House. You can find Rachel online at rachelcantor.com. She's on Twitter, at Rachel Cantor. You can also find her on Facebook. Thanks again to today's uh, sponsor, Squarespace. Be sure to visit squarespace.com if you need a new website or online portfolio. And when you sign up, don't forget to enter the offer code OTHER1. That is OTHER and then the numeral 1. If you do that, you get 10% off. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to go get the app, sign up for premium. Uh, Get the free official Other People app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. It just happens magically. And uh, you can also download episodes to listen to while offline. Best of all, uh, you can sign up for premium, which means uh, for $2 a month, you can access the full archives. Every single episode, and uh, you do this within the app. It's very easy. You can hear my conversations with authors like David Shields, George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Megan Boyle, Sheila Hetty, Sam Lipsight, Jess Walter, uh, Maria Simple, and so on and so forth. It's very easy. You can listen there uh, in the app. You can listen online. It's all very user-friendly. So just go get the app. The app itself is free. It's there waiting for you, okay? Are you currently participating in a major cultural moment? Are you standing in the crosshairs of history? Can you feel the heat of uh, humanity's impending gaze? If so, please uh, email me about your experience. The letters, uh, the address, I should say, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And uh, you can also leave me a voicemail over at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. Um, I could be huge one day. (laughs) You never know. What if I got huge? How would you feel about that? Would that be weird? Please remember that Truman Capote died of heart disease complicated by drug abuse and that Voltaire's second wife was his niece. That is it for now. Thanks again to Rachel Cantor. Go get her book. I will be back again soon with another conversation with another writer just for you. In the meantime, uh, I wish you all well as you... Uh, go about your daily lives and uh, as you endeavor to become huge. May we all become huge together. <laughs> Think about that for a second. What, like, what if everybody was huge? Huge. <laughs>